Welcome to the York Story Slam podcast, where we feature select stories from our monthly open mic storytelling events in York, Pennsylvania. On February 15th, nine storytellers shared their stories with our audience during a virtual slam. The theme for our February Story Slam was about last night. We heard stories about blind dates, international travel, lost loved ones, and imbibing to excess. In the end, our winner was Jason Plotkin with his story of his dad's final days and how it affected the people around him. So about a month after my dad had what was considered a routine heart procedure and was sent home, uh, we found ourselves in the medical intensive care unit um, at the hospital. Uh, he had a tube in his throat. He was non-responsive and they were running a bunch of tests on to figure out what was wrong. Um, this was a Monday night when it started and I was with him till about Tuesday night when the surgeon who performed the procedure the month earlier came in to tell me what was going on. Young guy, tall, good looking, but young guy sits down and the first thing I do is I grab my laptop because I want to I want to type everything down he's saying because I want to remember everything he's saying I want to remember you know whatever so I'm going to have to explain this to my family so look I need to I need to hear the words I can't let emotion really take me over at this point so he proceeds to tell me that my dad had what was a one in a thousand complication from the healing process from this heart procedure where his esophagus and his heart had healed together and that all the food he was eating and the debris was going into his heart. And so he had developed sepsis, but it was with every other condition, we just had no idea what was going on. So he gave me two options from my dad. And unfortunately, after discussing it with my brother and my wife and my family, we decided that the best thing that we could do for him at this point was to make him as comfortable as we could until he passed on. Um, so at that point, I'm also in organization mode right there where I'm like, I got to call family. I'm trying to get my one daughter home from college. You know, people need to come home and they need to say goodbye to my dad. So I'm sitting there and I'm making some calls and we're doing things. And, and the surgeon, he's still in the room and he's standing next to my dad. And while he's describing to me everything that's going on to him, all I kept thinking to myself was he's just saying the words, you know, it's like, it's like when you watch those medical shows and you're just like, we're sorry, we did everything we could for your father, but everything we tried didn't work. So, you know, this is where we are. And this is what my brain is. I'm not usually a cynic, but it's like, I'm just not processed. So he's standing next to my dad and I'm making these phone calls and I, I'm in between calls and we're getting my daughters to come over to see my dad. And he says to me, I've never lost a patient before. And then he turns to me and he says, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And in my brain, I'm like, what? I, I, I can't deal with you right now. Like I've got enough shit going on. I, I just can't. So I don't, I don't say anything. And I'm just like, okay. So I say to the nurse, look, before my dad, before my family comes over, I want you to remove the tube from my dad. I don't want my daughters to see him this way. This will, this will wreck them. And they're like, look, if we pull the tube, he could be dead in two minutes. I go, I'd rather him look like he's sleeping than have a tube in his mouth. So just before my one daughter is going to come in because they have to do them one at a time because of COVID, they pull the tube and it sounds like he's snoring. So it was like this moment where there's a bit of levity. My daughters were able to, they were amazing. So 
my wife takes my daughters home and I decide I'm going to stay with him until the end. So I'm, I'm sitting next to his bed and I'm expecting at any minute that he's going to go. Minutes and hours go by and I'm just sitting there. It's a late night and I fall asleep and I get woken up and it's five o'clock in the morning and, they, and he's still alive. And the nurse says, look, we're going to have to move from the ICU to another part of the hospital. So, and I said, that's fine. I'm going to go home, grab a shower. I'll be right back. So I step outside and right out there in the room is the surgeon. He's still there. He steps up to me and he says, do you think it would be okay if my family and I prayed for your dad? And I said, I'm sure my dad would really appreciate that. And I said to him, look, I want to talk to you. I said, about last night, about what you said. I said, let me tell you something. When my dad dies, there's going to be a lot of sad people. There's going to be friends and family who are going to be very upset. But my dad's lived a long life. He's 85 years old. He's impacted a lot of people. But I'll tell you what, if you don't use your gifts to help other people, there's going to be a lot more families and a lot more individuals that are going to be sad because of that. And I said, you can pray on that. You can do whatever you want. But I just needed you to know how I feel. And I need you to know, I know that's how my dad would feel. And he said to me, well, I appreciate you taking time to think of me during your time of grief. And I pointed to my father and I said, that's the way I was raised. I said, look, man, I'm running home. You are more than welcome to stay with my dad as much as you can and try to figure out what you need to figure out. And he said, okay, are you okay if I stay with him? I said, yes. So I ran home and he texted me the room where he was and my dad survived for another seven days. And every day for hours, this surgeon would come into my dad's room and spend time with him. I slept there almost every night, except for maybe one or two nights, but every day he was there. And I taught him about my father and I showed him photos and I introduced him to videos and I showed him all these things about my dad so he could know who he was. One of the last nights, by the fifth or sixth night, my wife is there with me and he texts me. He's like, are you there? I'm like, yeah. He comes in and he says, I had this amazing breakthrough last night with your dad. I prayed and I felt like I had this calm over me and I felt like he let me go. Like he told me it's okay. And so he goes, I do all this research that night. I'm inspired. I do all this research and I find this cutting edge procedure that they're now doing for this procedure that we did on your dad that only one person in Texas has been doing. And I reached out to that surgeon and I said to him, is this real? And he goes, this guy's like, I'm not someone to go along with hyperbole, but it is the best thing. And we've had, we've done 6,000 procedures and not one problem. And this was a one in a thousand problem that would usually happen. So he calls his, he calls the hospital administration. He calls his partners and says, I'm not performing another surgery until I get this new equipment that's going to help me with this. And then he tells me that's what he's going to do. And he said, when this, when this tube comes in, I have a surge, I have a, I have a procedure next Thursday. He goes, when this new tube comes in and every time I stick this tube down someone's throat, when I am performing this procedure, I will think of Bob Plotkin. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm not a religious man by any means, but I know, I know in my heart that my dad didn't stick around because he was concerned about my family and I moving on and being well. I know that he knew that this is what this guy did because this is who my dad was. Jason earned a spot in our Grand Slam in November. Next up, Eileen Joyce, who shared about making friends with people a bit younger than she and her travel companion. Through a series of events that are all different stories, I found myself uh, unemployed, 
uh, with about eight months of pay in a lump sum and nowhere to go from like June to September. I knew in September I was moving. I didn't have a job in June. So we started what we called my rum springer or some people called Eileen Springer. I just was like, I'm I'm 41. I'm going to party this summer. So um, when I was talking to people, one of my friends like, you got to go on a trip. You know, you got to go somewhere. So a series of conversations that I somehow settled on a trip to Sweden and Denmark because I love Northern Europe and it seemed a nice, cool place to go in July. And uh, I was prepared to go by myself. But then my friend Debbie uh, was like, I would go with you. And so we hadn't really traveled together. And so we had a little meetup to decide, do we have similar traveling styles? My travel style is to, you know, do a couple cultural things and like go to like a museum until it's socially acceptable to have cocktails. And it turns out that she also has that travel style. So we were like, yeah, let's do this. So uh, we went to Sweden, we had a great time. Um, and then a few days later, we took the train to Denmark and we did food tours. And uh, th- that morning on this one day, uh, Debbie wanted to go to, I think it's called Christiana, which is like this hippie enclave. They have declared themselves not to, to be an independent state from Denmark. Mostly it's so that they can like smoke pot and not get arrested. Um, I hate hippies. But uh, I was like, I'll go. <laughs> if you want to go, you've done my things. I'll do your thing, whatever. So we did that, which took up enough time until it was okay for us to go get cocktails. And uh, we had some Aperol spritzes on the canal. And then we went to dinner. And then we went later that evening to a cocktail bar that we'd seen on this food tour that this guy pointed out. He's like, this is a cute little cocktail bar. So we... Uh, Stop by the cocktail bar, we're getting drinks. And it's, as it gets crowded later in the evening, these two guys are like, hey, can we join you? And we're like, yeah, okay, sure. So uh, we start talking to the guys and I don't know, Debbie's off like talking to them about the one guy about something. I'm talking to this other guy about the first amendment because I don't know, <laughs> he was like, I think I was told him I was a journalist and he was like, oh yeah, we have a similar law in Denmark. You can say anything you want to anybody. You just can't say anything bad about the queen. And I was like, no, that's the whole point of the first amendment. It's the opposite of that. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. Just don't say anything bad about the queen. So yeah, that's kind of how the conversation went. <laughs> so the Debbie gets another drink and runs into like a Danish actor or something and they have a chat and she comes back and she was like oh I talked to this guy it wasn't Mads Mikkelsen that's all I know I don't know who this guy was um and we started talking you know we were talking about our kids and the guys at the table are like oh what kids and she's like she's like oh my son he's 25 years old and this these guys are like oh oh we're 27 (laughs) they're like oh oh." we're like yeah we are not in our 20s and uh then they have that moment that you sometimes have when you're with people speaking another language where they turned to each other and had like a little whispery convo in danish where they're like you i I, i'll translate the conversation for you it was like these ladies are old do we want to hang out with them and (laughs) a couple of minutes later uh they finally come back to us and they decide they were like, yeah, let's get another drink. And I was like, okay, I guess we passed the old lady test. They want to hang out with us some more. 
So we chatted with them some more. And this guy, the one guy was like, oh, you went to Christiana. He's like, did you smoke any weed? And I was like, no, nah, not, not today. <laughs> he's like, he's like, I like drugs, but not weed. I was like, okay. He's like, I like cocaine. <laughs> it's like, great. You do you. So they're talking about opening how they were going to open their own cocktail bar, which also seems like something that people who really like cocaine enjoy doing. And, uh, you know, we just talked about all their hopes and dreams that, that 20 year olds have. And, uh, finally got, it was pretty late. It's like 2 AM at this point. And the guy was like, do you want another cocktail? And Debbie says, I would like another drink, but I don't want another beer. Can, is there someplace nearby where we can get a beer? And the guy's like, yeah, I know a place nearby. So we're like, okay, well, so we leave and then it turns out they're like walking to get their bikes because it's Denmark and everybody bikes everywhere. And I was like, um, there are beer places very close to here. Why do you need their, your bike? So we follow these guys up the street a couple of blocks. And I realized I was like, Debbie, we're not going to another bar. We're going to this guy's apartment. And she's like, what? Where are we going to get axe murdered? And I was like, no, we're not going to get axe murdered. We're just going to try to get a bunch of cocaine thrown at us. So I was like, it's, it is 2.30 in the morning. I am old. It's time to go home. So I found, I was like, up. Oh. she's like, how are we going to get out of this? So I said, up the street, there was like a 7-Eleven. And I said, I'm going to go in that 7-Eleven and get a soda. And you're going to tell the guys that, like, I don't feel well and I want to go home. You just blame everything on me. So I went in and kind of wandered around for a bit and bought some Danish soda that I don't know. And I came out of the store and I hear Debbie say, we're going to go this way, which was near our Airbnb. And you guys can keep going this way. And that's, that's how this is going to go. And I was like, okay, she didn't really blame it on me, but I mean, that works too. Just give them general directions. So uh, they got the point they understood. And, uh, we gave them a hug and quickly caught a cab. I got home at like three in the morning and the next morning I made coffee and then went back to bed. And finally around 1 PM, when we both started feeling like humans again, she was like, we didn't get ax murdered. See, we didn't get ax murdered. And I was like, yes, but there's enough, there are worse things than getting ax murdered. And that is being stuck in some 20 something year olds apartment with a bunch of cocaine. So it was nice to feel young, but it was best to know the difference in your old age. Next up is Elizabeth Ehrenberg, who shared how her focus was diverted on two surreal days. So in spring of 2013, my boyfriend and I were living in a little tiny apartment in Malden, Massachusetts. And we were in our mid twenties trying to figure out how to like be adults. And so we thought, the best thing to do first is adopt a cat. So we adopted um, a little baby nine week old kitten. And um, so the day that we brought him home, uh, we decided to watch the Boston Marathon on TV. And we decided to do that from home because we had this new kitten, but usually we would have gone downtown, downtown Boston to watch the finish line all the runners cross the finish line on Boylston Street. It's kind of a tradition in Boston. Um, but this particular day, we were very happy we weren't there because uh, there was a terrorist attack. And we saw on television uh, these bombs go off. 
and kill three people and injure hundreds of others. And it was horrifying and shocking. And um, later that afternoon, this new cat we just got started having trouble breathing. And so we ended up taking the cat to the ER where they found this cyst in his neck. It's very kind of freakish, weird, random thing. Um, so they drained it and they sent us home with some antibiotics and they couldn't explain where it came from, but they said, good luck. And um, meanwhile, uh, our families were all like calling us to make sure like we weren't near the bombing and it was, everything was okay. And we were like, yeah, we were distracted by our new cat being sick. So, um, and everyone was kind of like, you know, not sure it was a great idea for us to get a cat. So we were like, maybe you should take it back to the shelter if it's got all these health problems, kind of starting to drain our bank account with all of these vet bills. Um, so two nights later, uh, the cat's cyst had returned and the cat was having trouble breathing again. So we were like, okay, we'll make a vet appointment for tomorrow morning and we'll, we'll get to the bottom of this and hopefully figure this out. But what we didn't realize was that evening was when this um, unfortunate tragedy was going to come to a new head, um, which is when the sus one of the suspects of the bombing was found hiding in a boat in someone's backyard in nearby Watertown. And so basically the entire Boston area, including us, went on mandatory lockdown, shelter in place. So we weren't technically allowed to leave. Um, but this cat was like kind of becoming sicker by the minute. And so we ended up breaking the rules and driving to the ER again to try to help him. And so when we got to the ER in the waiting room, they had TV screens on with live footage of this really crazy drama happening. Uh, it just doesn't seem like it was real. It seems like an episode of law and order or something like that. Um, but this was real life and it was happening just a few miles away. So, um, so at the ER, they ended up doing surgery on this baby nine week old kitten. And, uh, that surgery ended up <clears throat> not really solving the problem. We'd have to have another surgery <laughs> to end up solving the problem. And they ended up discovering like this little fox tail that had gotten down his nostril down way down into his, you know, nether regions here. And um, so eventually we saved his life. Um, but it was during one of the most dramatic nights in American history and certainly in the city we lived in. And, um, and while all of this was happening, our families were, of course, calling us being like, you're home, right? You're safe. And we were like, sure we are, but we were at the vet hospital. <laughs> um, and meanwhile, you know, people who didn't really understand us were like, why did you just get this cat that, you know, it's a uh, very high maintenance and you kind of got scammed by the shelter. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, we ended up being so thankful for this cat because it was not only a distraction from this um, surreal experience of living in Boston during one of the darkest times. Um, but that cat ended up making us adults that night. Um, and so fast forward about nine years later, that cat is right here. <laughs> 
sorry. He was on my lap a few minutes ago, but he moved. So that cat survived. He's going to be 10 soon. Um, that boyfriend is now my husband and we've moved states. We've added a child and another cat into the family. And um, he will always be this animal who, on one of the worst nights ever, triumphed over adversity. And that's what made us adults. Our final story on this month's podcast comes from Randy Schultz. Randy told us a story about learning some lessons from the morning after. I'm okay with the fact that I'm not the world's most interesting person. Like that Dos Equis spokesperson from a few years back, you know, the stay thirsty, my friends guy. Um, I don't drink much at all, but when I do, it usually leads to something embarrassing. So when I heard about this topic, I asked my wife, in the 35 years you've known me, have we done, have I done anything that's like with alcohol related that's so embarrassing, you know, it would make a good topic? I mean, and of course, my wife didn't know about the things that preceded her, like that time my senior year in college, where at a off-campus house I shared with five other guys, um, I was introduced for the first time to a bottle of Southern Comfort, and it didn't have operating instructions. And well, honestly, to the best of my memory, I don't remember much about the rest of that evening. I, I must have been pretty thirsty, but they told me the next day about last night and what I did and what I said and how silly, embarrassing, and even humiliating it was. And I told myself then I would never drink so much that I'd embarrass myself like that again. And, and I didn't until about four years later. And now I'm 24 and I'm a lieutenant in the army stationed in Germany. And a bunch of West Point cadets come over to visit with us to see what their assignments will be like in their first position when you know, they graduate. So one of them is assigned to shadow me. So I spend the week showing them the ropes. And then on Saturday, I decide to take him into Munich to see all the major sites. And I end it with planning to have dinner and one of those famous liters of beer at the Hofbrau house. And so I take him there and I, my, my plan goes, starts out all right. And we have this dinner and a great time, but I don't know, somewhere that plan for one beer must've led to two or three, or honestly, the best of my memory, I don't remember how many, but I must have really been thirsty that night, but we closed the Hofbrau house. And as I got out on the sidewalk, I realized I was really not in any condition to drive home. And so we go out to my car, which fortunately I only parked about a block and a half away. And I suggest this cadet, we just stay here and uh, recline the seats and let me rest till my head clears and drive safely home. And he gladly agrees with that plan. So I recline the seat and pass out immediately. And the next thing I notice, all this sunlight coming in the windshield. And I hear this knock on my driver's side window. And it's a German Polizei officer. And I'm like terrified. I'm horrified. Um, I roll my window down. I start talking to him. And he asks me what I'm doing. And he asks, and I explain to him about last night. 
and he um, looks around the car and he asks me to get out of the car to, I guess, see if my coordination balance and everything is okay, which uh, gratefully it is. And he releases me to go, you know, to continue and go on home. But I, that time I really swore that I would never drink so much that I would be embarrassed or have to explain about last night again. And I didn't until about four years after that. And then a friend suggests we go to Club Med in Bermuda together. And we have a great time doing all the, you know, righteous stuff. You know, we're playing tennis and golf and scuba and beach and pool. And it's all inclusive, wonderful place. But one day it rains really hard all day and we really can't do anything except we have like this three hour lunch, which extends itself um, right into an also long dinner. And there's all this included wine and beer to drink. So by the time that dinner's over, I've had so much to drink. I just don't know what to do myself. I mean, I'm very enthusiastic at this point. And then a, the resort stage show starts and they, they, you know, they encourage audience participation, but I far exceeded, you know, what they were looking for. And I'm singing and dancing in my seat at the show. And I, I mean, I could not have possibly been thirsty at that point. And I get up after that, they, they open the dance floor and I'm out there, you know, busting some moves. And I think I must be impressing everybody because they're all looking at me. And um, I noticed the resort manager's also looking at me and kind of politely smiling. And then he calls over this, you know, attractive young lady who I recognize as one of the instructors in the fitness center there. And then she comes over to me along with two of her male colleagues who look like they've been cloned from the mighty Thor out of the Marvel superheroes. And they come and ask me if I'd like to continue to party with them back in my room. And uh, now what I didn't know at the time was that they were a specially trained team to, you know, for retraction of the people who had overindulged so that we could get back to our room safely without hurting ourselves. So anyway, I agreed to go party with them. And although I'm sure I didn't really have much choice in this extraction operation they were running. And we go back and I don't know much else beyond that, except that the next morning, a lot of people are you know, coming up to me, other guests and saying, how do you feel this morning? And telling me embarrassing stories. And I, I, again, I say this time for sure, I will not drink that much and embarrass myself like this again. And I don't, which leads me back to where I went up to my wife and asked her, can she remember anything in the last 35 years we've been married where I've embarrassed myself with alcohol? And she can't. And I, I don't remember anything like that either in that time. But I, I, I think I have the same kind of advice that that world's most interesting man would give to you. And that is, um, if you want to avoid embarrassment, it's better to just stay thirsty, my friends. All the winners from this year's Open Mic Story Slam events will return at the end of the season to compete for the title of Best Storyteller in York at our Grand Slam. Updates on our events are available on our website, yorkstoryslam.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at @yorkstoryslam, as well as on Facebook 
and watch videos of all the stories from our events on our YouTube channel. We hope to see you virtually or on stage soon. Thanks for listening. This Story Slam podcast is produced by Catherine Roquet. Theme music composed and performed by David Wilson.